Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 2 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. In this season, we want to focus on practical discussions about unity within the Stone Campbell movement and beyond. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one so that the world may know. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Welcome back to week five of Lessons Learned from Mars Hill. This week's title is Gold, Silver, Precious Stones, Wood, Hay, or Straw. We're drawing from 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul exhorts the church there to build carefully, recognizing the difference between wise and foolish builders. The apostle is obviously reflecting on Jesus' well-known parable as he speaks to their context. Kevin, it's been so great to get to know our panel even better through this series. Uh, Dr. Alicia Crumpton, Kevin Holland, and Ben Brewster. It has really, it's going to be really bittersweet when this series is over. So today we're asking, how do we build spiritually healthy ministries that survive the storms that will inevitably test our work? Boy, thank you, Tina. Great to be back with you. And as you said, what a, a pleasure to be back with our panel I, too, have enjoyed getting to know them. What we're going to be looking at today is this whole idea of healthy ministries. In chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, Paul challenges the the Corinthians to humbly recognize their weaknesses. He, He declares that there's only one foundation to lay our work on, Jesus Christ, and none other. Moreover, he reminds them that each builder must choose with care how to build on that foundation, because the quality of their work and our work will be tested. Certainly, we we all desire to be wise builders, and yet we have to admit that we all have blind spots in our lives and our ministries. That's why we need one another, different perspectives. The Mars Hill story is a tragic example of what happens when leaders or groups of leaders isolate themselves without the accountability that comes from diversity. Could it be as simple as humbly listening to the voice of Jesus and those who would guide us in that way? So before we get started, I'd like to read from Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, and I hope you'll listen carefully and think about what Paul is saying and speaking into this context. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of each builder will become visible, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. 
If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. Thanks, Kevin. With that in mind, we're going to play a short audio clip from the rise and fall of Mars Hill and then begin the conversation with our panel. So, who killed Mars Hill? Well, you have to assign some of the blame to the guy at the center of it, the guy whose temperament created so much conflict and pain and disunity. But we're not just talking about the collapse of an individual's ministry. We're talking about the end of Mars Hill itself. And we should never lose sight of this as a place where people experienced radical transformation, recovery from addiction, restored marriages, a place where life's landmarks took place, marriage, birth of children, the burial of loved ones. How does that go away almost overnight? Yes, we look to Mark, and we'll look at that more as we go, but shouldn't we also look at the people around him, the ones who defended and insulated him, who built the ministry almost entirely on one person's back? What about the insiders who, after leaving, worked with a vengeance to bring Mark down? What about the outside voices, the criticism that came from people who thought Mars Hill was either way too liberal or way too conservative? Or the perpetual pot stirring on social media? Those, like Tony Jones noted, that discovered what great clickbait Mars Hill was. And then, what about us? As I said already, this is hardly an isolated phenomenon. Why do we keep doing this? Why are we regularly platforming people whose charisma outpaces their character and who leave devastation in their wake? Something attracts us. We buy in. And then we watch the collapse like spectators at a demolition derby. Understanding why this happens is really the project of this whole podcast. I think as we pick up this particular story, turn it over in our hands, and examine it from every angle, we'll learn a lot about Mars Hill, but also about these bigger questions about what's happening in the church worldwide. But for now, I'll say this. If we're going to honestly ask who killed Mars Hill, I think we'll find that the answer is a little bit like the ending of Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. Maybe we all did it. So as we listen to that audio clip, it calls us to recognize certain elements that are influencing the modern church toward these unhealthy narratives. Mike Cosper says that it's, quote, hardly an isolated phenomenon. Panel, do you agree? And is there there's something in the water, so to speak, influencing the modern church toward these unhealthy narratives? I think it's helpful to think in terms of of the social and, and how self-perpetuating the social realm can be. So, for example, um, you know, one of the examples that I come up with that our family always gets in trouble because we laugh at funerals because we're celebrating the person's life. But other people think that at a funeral, funeral you should be somber. And so that's the exa- an example of what we're talking about as we sort of evaluate, for example, a pastor and his or her role. So a person in a role, a pastor, for example, can be assigned believability based and legitimacy based on the coherency of their social 
identity, role, and behaviors. Now, a challenge can be that as that person achieves legitimacy and believability in that role, that aberrant behaviors, unethical behaviors, things that would be really inconsistent, uh, either from a, a desirable character or even inconsistent with what we think should happen, there's this process of socially sanctioning those behaviors as, quote, okay. Um, not that they are okay, but because of the greater work that the person is engaged with, there's almost a justification principle. And, and along with that is the group, the followers in this sense, they're also... Um, engaging in what it's what Goffman described as performance management. They're managing their identity in terms of how how strongly they identify with the whole. So in this example, the Mars Hill Church and to be a member of that church has a great deal of import on the people's lives and their identification with that church. So what can begin to happen is as they bolster and legitimize the pastor, in this case, segregation behaviors can start to occur. So if you do start speaking out against the pastor and the prevailing ideas, then you're ostracized. I mean, this is the, the rootedness of stigma and prejudice and um, uh, sort of outcasting of people from the group. And we saw that in the Mars Hill example where um, the stronger one's sense of identity with the group and the individual, in this case, Mars Hill, Mark Driscoll, the more resistant to critique one may become. And I think that's, that's an important sort of thing to think about when we're thinking about the DNA of churches, just how resistant um, to critique they can become internally because of these factors that Goffman thinks about or talks about. Wow, those are great thoughts. And I, um, it's interesting, I was in a conversation with uh, some pastors recently discussing how we need to look at or reimagine or revisit the women's role, so the gender issues relative to the new covenant. And one of the elders was saying, hey, we want to make sure that we're not influenced by society and culture as we, we just want to hew to the word of God. We, won't, we don't want to be influenced by culture or society relative to the, you know, Gen Z view of, of women and so forth and so on. And it was just telling because it's as though the church hadn't in, in our generation or the generation before been influenced by culture. And the truth is we've always been influenced by culture and uh, by society in the way that we view the scriptures, our hermeneutic, our orthopraxy, it's just that it's now it's a different culture influencing us in a different way than the culture that we or that this particular individual had become accustomed to. And I think what, what it makes me think about relative to Mars Hill and to this, this sort of uh, sense of, you know, the ends justify the means is I think it, it really comes down to who, who are we worshiping ultimately? Now, of course, ostensibly we're worshiping God and we're trying to follow Jesus, but perhaps uh, are we really worshiping at the altar of success? And is our is our number one bottom line 
success. We want to be a successful church. I want to be a successful pastor. I want to feel as though, of course, I want to serve God, but serving God in a in obscurity is not good enough. Serving God in a way that that where my church is not viewed as as effective or as um, you know cutting edge or as remarkable as someone else's church, where we're you know, of course, Mars Hill was begun in Seattle, and you look at Starbucks, and you know, that's the you know analogy. That's the analog where you look at that success. You have an idea, you have a, a great you know entrepreneurial spirit, and you spread all over the world. And so, I think that 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 thinking influences the church more than I, than we would like to admit at times. And so, I think that just honestly looking at what what is most important and relative to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 the metrics of you know so he's talking about building that will last and what i hear in that passage is how you ultimately measure success in god's eyes is is something planted that lasts and that has a solid foundation that passes on through the generation so he would say it's a it's a faith community that lasts and grows and regenerates rather than one that burns brightly and then burns out. But I think I'll say we and I we're conditioned to immediate results and success. And so we kind of baptize the idea of success in the Christian world. And I think that's where we can get into trouble. So reexamining what are our metrics and who is it that we're actually serving? And what does, quote unquote, success in God's eyes look like in a church? And I guess, in you know, the last thing I'll say is, uh, as I am, as we're in a succession process and we're trying to pass the baton to our Gen X and uh, millennial leadership in our church, really, it's can we can we help people? Can we help people find and follow Jesus and then continue to grow through a generation and then pass it to the next generation. That That's more of, I guess, I think God's telling me that's the lens you need to be looking through. Not, you know, what what were your results this past month or this past year uh, so that you just don't get on this roller coaster. I was shocked in some of the, I mean, I'll probably be branded as a heretic before we're done here today, but I was shocked by... Um, some of the language that I uncovered as I was researching for today around this idea of the evangelical industrial complex um, and how um, there's this strong language. I found this book called Holy Mavericks by Shane Lee and Philip Luke Sinatier. I'm not sure how you say it. I love this idea of a holy maverick. I mean, just, I love that term, but Um, There was this article in this edited book about evangelical innovators. And um, the author said this, innovators bridge or collapse the distance between religion and culture by offering a more relevant and appealing message than their institutional counterparts. And then they give a list of qualities about evangelical innovators. You know, they capitalize on untapped niches. They construct narratives that link national sentiments with spiritual integrity. They scratch where people are itching, and then they capitalize on trends and new discoveries. And I found myself thinking, you know, historically, if we look at the Restoration Movement, Stone Campbell Movement, 
we have a strong history of entrepreneurial spirit. You know, the number of churches we've planted, the number of colleges, journals, there's a whole lot of stuff that we have have created uh, within our movement. And so I'm really thinking about, like, when we're thinking about innovation with regard to church planting, what about this idea of bridging or collapsing the distance between religion and culture? I mean, how do we define relevance and are we really shaping or being shaped by, is there an opportunity to create something new um, rather than um, influencing what is? I mean, it, it seems like the good news is something totally radical that people have never even experienced before. So I don't know, Ben, if you have anything to offer on just this historical sense of innovation and entrepreneurship within our movement related to church planting. But some of the language that's used just frightens me sometimes when I hear people speaking about franchise models and like, what is really going, who's, who's doing the influencing here? I can say down in here in Louisiana, we like to win at everything. And so sometimes um, we've hired coaches who have been short on integrity, but they've produced on the field or the court. And so everyone just kind of says, well, yeah, we don't like that, but look at the results. And I think that carries over into our churches, uh, especially with the decline of uh, particularly restoration movement churches, churches of Christ, which the Christian Chronicle has, has detailed in the past year or so, uh, we are a dying movement. And so there's this pressure and we look around and say, okay, who's, who's growing and, and we need a person like that. And, and we, we look at those things instead of character. And, and so we, we push character to the side and we, we, in essence, kind of sell out, uh, like, uh, the Israelites when they were complaining to, uh, to Samuel and they said, we want a King just like all the other nations. And in, in turn, they rejected God and, and God gave them a king. And it turned out that's not that's not really what they wanted or needed at the time. And I think that's how culture can really um, influence the church in a negative way and create a systemic problem. Um, we equate churches with who's the pastor at that church. And how many times when that well-known pastor leaves or there's conflict, the church suffers maybe a healthier model would be like that pastor is able to leave that church and that church is, is healthy and carries on because their primary commitment is to Jesus Christ and their leadership model reflects that. Boy, does it, doesn't that get us to our passage of first Corinthians three, you know, the, they're enamored with, they're following Apollos or Cephas and, and, uh, even some saying we're of Christ, you know, as if maybe they were and the others weren't and, Boy, Paul steps into that to say, hey, we preach Christ and him crucified. We're just God's fellow workers, but he's the one that makes things grow. And uh, and this, you know, other foundation can no one lay. When we decide the foundation is going to be somebody who's going to be some messianic figure that's going to step in and make it happen for us, uh, it seems like we're, we're getting away from the very thing Paul is cautioning us against. And mm. 
So do you think that there are ways we do church today that were absent in the early church that makes us more susceptible to dangers related to power dynamics and charismatic celebrity leadership, the celebrity culture? Well, the whole premise of... Go ahead. Go ahead, Kevin. I, I would rather you go, but I, the, the whole, one of the premises of the restoration movement was restoring, is the premise, restoring the new covenant church. But, and you look at it, how possible is that in the 21st century? And why would you want to try to sort of paste onto the 21st century something from the first century? So uh, there's a nobility in wanting to just to, to go with what the scriptural principles are and to imitate the faith and the Christ-likeness of the first disciples and not put man-made, you know, attachments on it. And that is noble, but it, it really doesn't, it, you can't scale it. You can't have a church in 2022 that is, quote unquote, first century because all the technologies, all the, the ways that we convene, how, how they met in the first century versus how, how we meet, how they communicated versus how we communicate. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's completely different. And so I, I, I do think that we, we adopt business models or education models for how we, uh, how we build community at times that we feel are more effective than, um, you know, the, the Acts 2 model of uh, daily devotion, uh, more of a house church, more intimate connection. I think, I do think the idea of corporate, we've wrestled with this in our fellowship of churches. Uh, one person said when we were more of a small group, house church focused entity, we, we saw more uh, positive effect, but when we became more corporate and about our brand as a worldwide fellowship or a national fellowship, we lost something. So I think uh, we do wrestle with who, who are we? Who are we following? What what building model are we following? And often I think we we don't trust that the first century one would be as effective as the one we see if being effective all around us in the business world and in the world of education and sports and so forth. I think celebrification is a term that I learned this week, and it's a really interesting term. It, it just talks about the way that people become a celebrity, and um, it's about transformation. And I think one of the things that I that sort of was shocking to me listening to the Mars Hill is how Mark Driscoll he didn't end up where he started. It was a process and a journey. And even, dare I say, it sounded like that his story sort of changed, his origin story sort of changed as he sort of moved into the role of becoming Mark Driscoll as the, as the pastor. And I think that, the, that one of the changes that sort of helped facilitate that is the, the use of social media and learning from social media about, I mean, we have people who are now called influencers. And if you pull the curtain back on, on who is an influencer, a lot of the photos that they post on IG, Instagram, are posed. 
they're fake. They're not really in this cool vacation spot. They're what? Staged. Are you kidding? <laughs> you know, and I've been and, deceived. <laughs> the, the way celebrity culture. I don't have. I have a lot more questions than answers, but I do have a concern about how this idea of, of being a cool Christian sort of was on play there within the church and it contributed to the use of social media. I think what you're, you're hearing me articulate is it's really a complex thing. So you had the, the wanting to be cool and relevant combined with this, this becoming a celebrity and using social media as a tool to reach people and to be relevant. It's all sort of entangled. And I think there was a backbone of that, that that we probably need to talk about as well. And it's this idea of commodification, you know, when, when a church is primarily concerned with marketing and public relations and brand and crafting an identity that is then uh, distributed via social mm-hmm. media, is that a good thing? How does that identity stand alongside uh, identity in Christ? And and like I said, I, I think these are the questions I'm grappling with. I don't have a pat answer for these questions, but clearly this this idea of branding and marketing, using social media and becoming uh, a celebrity and the way the congregation sort of supported and enacted those behaviors that all sort of fits in there together somehow i have far more questions and answers i was thinking when you asked the question tina what changed uh, i immediately went in my mind back to the fourth century and constantine becoming the the roman emperor and in the past christians um it, it it was not a popular thing. It was not a, a, to your advantage to be a Christian. It was Christianity was viewed as an illegal religion. Um, a lot of restrictions, persecution, death. Uh, they had a tough go of things. When Constantine became emperor and he embraced Christianity, all of a sudden it became to your advantage to be a, a Christian. It, it was the thing that if you wanted to get ahead, if you were a Christian, that was going to help. And now we see churches moving from homes or meeting in catacombs to building uh, elaborate buildings or being given property by the government. And and then you start seeing all these types of ecclesiastical um, arrangements come into the church titles. And, and it, it became a, you know, trying to create an image. And I don't think we saw that in the church prior to Constantine's conversion. So, so we have these two quotes out of the clips that we played, or the clip that we played coming into this segment, and I'd like to get your thoughts on on these quotes out of the audio clip. Um, first, um, Mark Cosper said, yes, we look at Mark, and we'll look at that more as we go, but shouldn't we look at the people around him, the ones who defended him and insulated him, who built a ministry 
almost entirely on one person's back. And then the other quote, what about us? As I said already, this is hardly an isolated phenomenon. Why do we keep doing this? Why are we regularly platforming people whose charisma outpaces their character and who leave devastation in their wake? Something attracts us. We buy in. And then we watch the collapse like spectators at the demolition derby. Boy, as fresh as our most recent news, you know, we're, we're seeing news of another um, evangelical leader, pastor of a large megachurch, having to resign from his position um, for inappropriate behavior. Uh, we'd, we'd say abuse of that role and position. What do you say, panel, to those two quotes? Those who stand back and let it happen, and uh, and then wh- why do we keep letting this happen? I think there's a human need to want to be important, to be to have proximity to what's important. To I think there's a fear of anonymity, a fear of not mattering. That whole that sense of I think it's in all of us to one degree or another. You you want to um, you want your life to matter. You want your life to count. And I think that that ambition that is I think part of God's image on us can be manipulated. And so when you look at a situation like Mars Hill or uh, similar situations. Uh, the idea of if I'm around this person who has this great gifting or this great vision or this this great uh, talent, then I get some of the shine from them. And I, I you know, th- that sense of uh, I'm I'm a part of this group that's changing the world. And obviously, Jesus changed the world, but it can the the scales can tip so that I'm I'm more focused on being a part of something exciting, something inspiring something that gathers notoriety rather than uh, really doing my best to follow Jesus to the best I can and to bring people to him, to introduce them to him, to help help them fall in love with him. It, it, it can easily, the percentages there can easily shift and it can be more about, you know, the happening thing. And that's what I saw at, at Mars Hill. And, and, you know, we see it all throughout society. Uh, situations like this can't happen without enablers, without yes men, without people and women that look the other way. But what's in it for them is, I think, or or us, is to be a part of the happening thing. Because there is another one in the news right now, and it seems like it's more frequent. It makes me think, like, uh, I really appreciated what what the quote about like people who look look the other way or that um who defended him or insulated when that happens and and i think so with this recent one this week with the hillsong pastor i just wonder like is the reason that these things are coming to light more frequently is because people are becoming more uh convicted to like have accountability or, or attempt to change negative patterns and things like that? Or is it like, there's so much of a gotcha kind of thing and there's so much, 
people just digging in and like that investigative, they want to know kind of thing. What, what is making like more of these come to light and, and will that shift anything for us? It is a good question. It's so complex. I mean, I'm on just a base level, it kind of goes without saying, but the invention of 24 seven news coverage and then the addition of of everybody has their electronic tether via their cell phone. Nothing is <laughs> nothing is unseen, so to speak. It's very hard to find privacy and um, even quiet, given the the ubiquitous uh, access to technology and. And maybe that's part of it is that it's just harder for that behavior to go unseen because there's always eyes, you know. Um, it's so and people have gotten you... a lot of power. There's something, there's a phenomena in the literature on use of social media and sort of trying to understand the ubiquitous use and consumption of technology and social media that in reality TV, people see themselves as their own court kind of reporters. It has shifted ever so slightly, perhaps, or maybe in some cases very much so, people's perception that they're newsmakers. They can they can make news. They've got a lot of power in the hands of their, their technology to take a video or to make a recording or to observe and take pictures. And so I, I, this is another question that I have a lot of, or another topic that I have a lot of questions on, but how are we, how is our sight changing and our, our powers of observation changing as we're quote, looking for those opportunities to take a picture, so to speak? Um, I think we've reached, you know, there are different hinge points in history. And I think we're in the middle of one now with the just of course truth has always been under assault in society but i just think with the rise of conspiracy theories and uh, we've seen national disputes regarding basic facts of life like elections and so forth and so on that i've never seen in my lifetime so i just think it's a so you look at that you look at the the advent of the Me Too movement, where the, the tipping point of these behaviors have gone on forever, and yet there's a fatigue level and an, uh, just an outrage level that has been reached in other areas of society that, okay, we, we're not going to deal with this anymore. So I just think it's a, it's a unique time in history. So to answer your question, Tina, I do think we're in a, in a hinge point of history and society, you know, convergence of social media, convergence of more advocacy. I mean, where would we be in a, in a, in a good sense? Think about all the evils that have been exposed and some healing that has begun that was because some kid or some, somebody had a cell phone. And had they not had that cell phone, had they not taken the video, then, you know, uh, massive things wouldn't have been exposed and, and positive change wouldn't have been made. So I don't think it's all bad, but I just think um, in Mars Hill's case and in, in Hillsong's case, 
I just think it, it reached a tipping point where there was, there was so much evidence that it, it just finally broke through because it, or, or looking back to the situation with Willow Creek, there had been years and years and years. So, and I remember in our fellowship, there was a period after, I don't know, issues that had been discussed for over a decade, but one particular individual decided to write a letter and it was a tipping point, but it had just been building for years and years. So you can't necessarily predict when those times will happen, but I think we're in one right now. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think it's, uh, I wonder if it's a reckoning uh, where um, we've allowed things to go on. We've known they were going on. We didn't speak up. And uh, and there's a reckoning now acknowledging the sins of the church and the need for the church to repent uh, from empowering um, leaders uh, who are short on character but high on charisma. I mean, how many times this is a charismatic person? We want this person, and um, we don't look that deeply at character. And and at some point, there comes a reckoning. And I wonder if we're experiencing some of that, not just with the situation at Mars Hill, but in churches all over the world. Well, there's so many examples. I think, when the, particularly within the U.S. context, the memes that some of my non-Christian friends send me are about how we care so much about abortion. We've become a one topic uh, political stance about abortion. And and I know it's also a a spiritual stance. I'm not, I don't, I don't mean to misspeak here, but the, the meme goes, Oh, you care so much about the unborn child, but children in cages on the border in Arizona, you don't care anything about those children. And there's some, there's some duplicitousness in our attention and what we've prioritized as far as our, our layers of concern, our ethic of care, um, regard to uh, race, immigration, some other is- social issues that then become sort of fodder for memes and critique in the sense that, well, you say this, but you it, you obviously don't care about the human person because those children are in cages or homeless are still unfed or, you know, just whatever language that you want to go with. And, and, and I think particularly the, the sexual sin part of it, you know, the, the anger of women being sort of excluded, women can't lead, women aren't leaders, women aren't this. And then all of a sudden it, it, it sort of reinforces this idea of misogyny and um, hyper-masculinity within the church that is doesn't help our, our conversation. It's like, look at how many pastors are stepping down due to sexual sins or allegations. And, you know, I, there is this thing that to have have authority, moral authority, you need to to be clear and have integrity and character. So maybe this is a good time to shift gears a little bit. We've been doing this to a degree, but, but let's zero in, focus in on it a bit more and, and apply some of this to our context in 
churches that are, you know, in this Stone Campbell movement uh, stream of churches and heritage. As, as we look to the future, um, h- how does this help us and how should we be perhaps reimagining restoration? What, what should it look like and, and what should it mean for us in the current and future context? Are there things that we're missing or overlooking that we need to give more attention to? You know, Kevin, I think in in our movement, we, we thought we had developed a, a model and that was based on the New Testament, but a model that would prevent things like this happening. We, we have elders, uh, every congregation independent led by elders, and you have a minister and, and that would prevent something like what we're talking about happening at Mars Hill. And the hard truth is it, it hasn't. And I think one of the things we're talking in this episode about is why is that the why is it the case? Why what what did we get wrong, and, and how can we do better in the future? And I, I think we start moving away from the leadership models of the world and business. I had someone a, a year ago tell me the church is a business, and he was just adamant about it. And and we went back and forth on it because I think the model for the church and the model for leadership is Jesus. It's the attitude of Christ. And and I think that's what Paul is reminding us of in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, that it all comes back down to, to, to Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's really powerful. Sort of like is, is, is a community solely focused on Jesus, is it, an, is that enough? Is, is under the radar, not blasted out on social media every second, just building an organic community of people who are finding and following Jesus. Is that enough for the 21st century Christian? And I was talking to John about the advent, at least in our fellowship and ICLC of more and more house church communities and going away from the, the the larger corporate gatherings for some who've been doing that for 20 years or 30 years and, and just want something more, more organic community oriented, home oriented and, and showing the love of Jesus and reaching people that way. And I don't think one model is better than the other model. All of them work in different contexts, but I think the heart of it, it seem, seems to me that, simplifying and and just sort of okay we want to be countercultural not for the sake of that but we want to we want to imitate Paul in that sense of I preach Christ alone that's a radical shift you know I preach Christ plus be a part of the successful group plus improve your life plus you know x y or z so i i i feel like um one of the one of the hopes we well two things that encourage me is when I, it's funny you read the New Covenant sometimes, but then you know they were messed up. I mean, we're messed up, but I mean, you look at all the epistles, and you know, ninety percent of them just helping people to get along and try to function and not steal from each other and not lie and you know all this stuff. And yet, Jesus was still there; he was still forming them. So we're going it's going to be messy, and that's okay. So that at least encourages me that the new covenant was messy and they, you know, they had uh, like someone else mentioned earlier, uh, Amenaeus and Alexander and Diastrophes and different, you know, uh, characters that came up and 
cause trouble, but the, the church still. So that just encourages me. And I think we need to remember, hey, by the grace of God, we're here and, uh, you know, we're saved by grace through faith. And uh, it's not a perfection, you know, not a perfection uh, religion. It's a relationship with Jesus. But then also we've got this next generation coming up and they see the holes and blind spots and hopefully they see the good things too. So something we can do, I think, as a church is invite them. Hey, what what do you see that we don't see? Um, and, and you know, we could just make a, make a sort of uh, concerted effort to identify, okay, we have blind spots. We all know that intellectually we don't embrace it emotionally as much okay what are what are what's our blind spot for this year that we're going to try to uh, address is it might it be uh, our our you know women in leadership might it be our um, our racial blind spots might it be our avoidance of those who are on the margins whatever it is, I think that that's something that, that we could all do. Okay, what's one what's one blind spot we can you know we can go uh, go after this year or this season? You know, you mentioned young people, and there's also other non-dominant groups that feel unheard or marginalized or silenced, kind of invisible. And you mentioned one practical thing we can do to change, which is to ask what what is a blind spot of these young people and these different people within the church. What are some other practical things we can do to, to engage these different groups within the church, but also just become a healthier church in that context? Well, a couple of things. I, I think, I think you're spot on this, the, the nuns, you know, NES, there's, there's lots of literature on the statistics related to people who, who either are leaving the church or do not profess um, to be part of a church. Some of them still profess to believe in Jesus, but there's just lots of categories within it. But oftentimes the analysis I've read about the nuns are, um, are sort of assessing what it means to be a Gen X or a Gen Y and, and putting some qualities around that. I think, I think perhaps we need to humbly ask the nuns, particularly those who were formerly church attenders, what their viewpoints are, what is their lived experiences of church, and and as a way to learn, maybe we need to reconceptualize church as a construct in terms of understanding why are people leaving the church but still saying they believe in Jesus? I think that there's some deep-seated things there for us to learn in terms of how we approach church and what it means to be a body of believers. Another thing, Tina, that um, you mentioned something about thinking about vitality, and I was surprised. Um, I read the Megachurch 2020 assessment, I guess you would call it, report, uh, done by the Hartford Institute for Religion Research. And I was surprised at, at, at this. They described spiritual vitality in terms of the church. And here are the qualities that they looked at. Clear purpose and mission, a willingness to change, 
a greater level of volunteering, a greater openness to incorporating newcomers, and greater congregational activity. Could we listen to that again? And here are the qualities that they looked at. Clear purpose and mission, a willingness to change, a greater level of volunteering, a greater openness to incorporating newcomers, and greater congregational activity. Now, I was surprised, first of all, that spiritual vitality was oriented as the sort of unit of analysis towards the organization rather than the believers. And then right after that, they answered the question in part by saying that personal spiritual practices are regular worship attendance, tithing, scripture study, prayer, talking about one's faith, etc. Both definitions of spiritual vitality and personal spiritual practices kind of left me cold. Like, do we really understand about what it means to grow as a believer and to be discipled and spiritually formative language? To me, I guess that's what I'm getting at. The language did not sound like spiritually formative language. And that's the question I'm rising is how would we know it when we saw it? Like, how would we know that a person is growing spiritually and in their discipleship, and maybe maybe they've already gone to the punchline that these are practices that a person would exhibit, but I'm not sure. I, I think I want to know more about what does it mean to be spiritually vital as an individual and as a collective? And then I think with those nuns, I'd want to say, okay, nuns, what would it look like to you to see spiritual vitality? And how does that inform what church looks like? Everett Ferguson has some books called Early Christians Speak, in which he contains direct quotes from Christians in the first three centuries. And one of the most amazing discoveries as you read throughout this this collection of information that he's put together is how socially active the Christians were. Um, Christianity to them was not an event on a Sunday. It, it literally permeated every area of their lives. And so uh, you have Christians buying freedom for slaves. You have Christians taking in the poor. You have Christians caring for unwanted children. Uh, they were doing all of this while being an unlicensed religion. They weren't concerned about the size of their building or the facilities or the number of ministries they could market to the people in their community. They simply went out and were the hands and feet of Jesus every single day. And today you look at, in any town, some of the biggest buildings in most towns are church buildings. But what happens when the temperatures are are below freezing? Do we open up our buildings and welcome people to come in and be warm and be fed? Do do we do that? Or, Or have we lost focus on what our Christian ancestors taught us? And, and that is, Christianity isn't about constructing this complex theology. It's about living like Jesus Christ. Uh, I think it was Dave Stone I heard years ago say, uh, when you have somebody who's, whose house has, they've lost their home and you're, and they need a house rebuilt, they're more concerned that your two by fours match and, and, and connect than whether or not your theology perfectly matches. I think that speaks to Alicia's thing of like defining 
like what you just described then is like the demonstration of our faith in a way that's practical and visible and and shows that we're disciples. I got a heart on fire. Someone hit the alarm. A heart on fire. Lighting up after dark. I hold my breath, but it's still gonna catch a heart on fire. So, panel, what a great conversation. So many directions that you all have taken us that I'd like to pursue further and wish we had more time to do that. Uh, but we want to bring it back to, to what Jesus is saying to us in, in his teaching, in his word. Always want to take it back to Christ. And, you know, First Corinthians 3, that's where we started. He's our foundation. If you were to offer, based upon this conversation and the things we've been talking about, a, a uh, some counsel as to how our listeners and their churches, you know, can help us as congregations to do ministry better and to build in ways that, that are sustainable and build towards the future and towards healthy narratives and things that our kids can build well upon and take from us. What would you offer? I think a good place to start would be building for the long term and not the short term sort of Dallas Willard's idea of abandoning outcomes comes to mind where, you know, building with gold and silver takes, it's more expensive. It takes longer and being okay with that. So not trying to get there fast, but trying to, you know, have, have something sustainable. So I would say that, and also representation matters. So I feel like we would do well to to get as many people at the table as we talk, try to reimagine what would a Jesus community look like today, right now, in the lived experience of our members, as we reimagine that, have as many people from every generation and ethnicity and gender at the table forming what that would look like rather than just a few of us crafting what we think would be most effective for, for everyone. I think the scriptures are very clear that, that we have been called to show hospitality to strangers. And I don't think hospitality there necessarily means solely having a dinner at your home. But part of being a good host is sort of earning the right to be heard among those that you're hosting and being a good guest. It's a reciprocal relationship. And so in that case, I think we need to consider what does it mean to be hospitable? How did God use communion as a way of bringing us together around a common table? And how can we create spaces for that to occur. And then through dialogue and conversation, we can regain, re-earn, if necessary, the right to be heard about issues that are very difficult in, in our society, where we may not dis, we may not agree, but we can respectfully see the world through another person's eyes and minister to them um, uh, right alongside that, that agreement or disagreement. I think telling stories um, 
stories that remind us to connect with the better angels of our nature, uh, to be more like Jesus. In the early 1920s, Churches of Christ in Nashville uh, wanted to um, have a, a big revival type event, gospel meetings, what we used to call them. And they chose the Ryman Auditorium to do this. And uh, they were trying to figure out who would be best to speak at this event. And so they they narrowed their list down to two people and, and they chose an individual, but they were concerned about the individual they hadn't chosen because he knew he was one of the final two and they wanted him to, to lead singing at the event. And so they went to this gentleman named C.M. Polius and they told him, we, we decided to go with, with the other guy, but we'd like you to do this. And we're concerned about how how we don't want you to be overly disappointed or hurt by this. And and Polius made this statement. He said, I would gladly sweep the floors of the Ryman Auditorium so that the gospel of Jesus can be preached. And I think when we hear and tell stories like that, we're reminded of the Savior who we follow, who emptied himself, became nothing, took on the form of a servant, and, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's so, I feel like every week I just, like I finish these podcasts and I've been on a different time zone than everybody else and I'm tired because it's nighttime where I am, but then I have so many thoughts going through my mind and I feel so hopeful, like because of the, of the heart and um, attitudes and ideas expressed by all of you. And um, I just want to say thank you so much. I hope our listeners are enjoying these conversations and getting as much out of them as I am. But even if they're not, I'm happy that I'm part of these. So we have one more episode in this series and with our panel, and we're calling our next episode Beauty from Ashes. We want to remember the resurrection is on the other side of the cross. There's a new life after forest fire, and to borrow from Greek mythology, the phoenix rises from the ashes. We'll be discussing the ideas about rebuilding or reconstructing after the storm. How do we heal and find rest in Jesus? And when we have been hurt by those within the family of God, how do we restore those relationships? Until then, consider getting together with another disciple of Jesus outside your family of churches over a meal or beverage. Practice hospitality. Remembering that unity starts with a cup of coffee. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you can't find a gathering in your area, we can help you start one. It's not difficult or time-consuming, and we'll help you out along the way. It really does simply start with a cup of coffee. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax-deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless, and remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.